So glad you guys could all make it. Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 21. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this is going to be a long passage. We're going to read the entire chapter. For some of you, this might be the first time you've read Daniel chapter 1. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not. And we're not going to even really get into the first chapter, but I, I wanted to put it on our minds so that you know the context. But Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 21, if you're here for the first time, you'll see this, uh, the passage on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. This is God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and incompetent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. I heard the actual pronunciation as Abednego, <laughs> but we just say Abednego, I guess. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about, about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, 
who was the next king way after Nebuchadnezzar. So he was there for a very long time. Amen, let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory. We praise you for this gathering. We thank you for your spirit that is here with us always, and we thank you for your word now. Father God, let your word speak. And Lord God, let your word go deep into our hearts, whatever you want to say, not my thoughts or opinions, but your word. And I pray that you would, Father, make alive in us understanding and conviction and, Father God, commitment, commitment to follow you. Wherever you lead, we want to go. So thank you, Lord God. We thank you for this time and everyone joining us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, I'm very excited today to start a new sermon series. As you can tell, we're not in the book of Mark anymore. But today we're going to be starting a new series called Disciples at Work. Disciples at Work. And basically, what I want to talk about is how do we live out our faith in the workplace as disciples of Christ. And we're going to be looking at the life of Daniel as the basis for this entire series. And as you can tell, this series is continuing right along with that theme this year of being disciples. So we're going to be looking at being disciples now in the workplace. Now, I realize that not everyone here is in a traditional 9-to-5 job outside the home because that's immediately what people think of when you hear workplace. But I realize some of you guys are here as students, amen? You guys are students in school, but you're fully at home. You're working remotely. I also recognize that not, not all of you are in the same kinds of workplaces. So for example, some of you guys are in environments that are very friendly to faith, right? You go in and it's like everyone's Christian. Your boss is Christian. There's like a cross hanging on the wall of your workplace, right? Praise God. Others, you're working in a place that's very neutral. They really don't care what you are. And you can be a Christian, but, you know, just do your job. Others, you're working in a very hostile place to your faith. And you know exactly what I mean by that. So I recognize all of your work situations are different. And although I can't address all the different situations that you guys are in separately, I believe that everything we're going to look at and learn from the life of Daniel is going to be instructive. I really do. But for anyone whose life intersects with non-believers and a non-biblical worldview, I think you're going to get something out of all the things we're going to learn. And all of you guys who are truly doing work, and all of you guys are doing work, whether you're a student, whether you have a 9-to-5 job, even if you're a child, anyone who's doing honest work, you're going to get something out of this as well. Because we're going to be looking at the theology of work. So everybody can get something. So for example, some of you don't have a 9-to-5 job, but you go to a secular school. Well, when you go to school... Are you going to be interacting with non-believers and non-biblical worldviews all day long? Yeah, absolutely, right? Very, very soon on Monday, you're going to be sitting right next to a non-Christian and you're going to be interacting with them. Others of you might go to a Christian school or you work in a Christian environment. But even there, you're bound to interact with people who aren't true believers. They lied on the application to get in. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Some people do. I know that for a fact. I went to a seminary attached to a Christian school. I remember one time, short story, but I was sitting in this Christian library at a Christian school, and I kid you not, the two students sitting next to me had the foulest language I could imagine, and they weren't keeping the secret, and they were talking about the foulest, most obscene topics that you can imagine. I'm like, praise God, I'm here at Biola. <laughs> but people, they're not true believers, even in these settings, right? That's a great school, by the way. <laughs> No, I totally, I was blessed, but going to that seminary. 
but they don't have the same worldviews we do, even though you go to a Christian school working in a Christian environment. So are you going to be interacting with people like that? Of course you will. And then others of you, you work from home fully remote, but you will likely interact with non-believers. Amen? Coworkers, clients, patients who don't have the same values and beliefs you do. They don't have the same worldview you do. So even if you're sitting at home in your jammies, right, you got a suit on top, you're in your boxers underneath, and you're sitting there, but you're going to be interacting with people who might not be believers. And finally, even if your work is to homeschool your kids who are believers, you are not isolated from the world either. But you will encounter non-believers and their worldviews as you use the internet together to do schooling, as you go through activities with your kids outside the home. And if you aren't yet, you will, right? You will. So what I'm saying is all of this is just reality of living in this world. And because you're living in this world, whether you work or don't work, whether you work from home or remotely, whether your work is friendly to faith or hostile, what we're going to be talking about during this series, it will intersect with something that you're doing. In some way, you're going to be intersecting with non-Christians and their worldviews. You're going to be doing work, and so we're going to be talking about the theology of work, and so you're going to get something out of it. Now, having said that, we're going to look directly at living out your faith in the workplace, though. Right? That, that's what the series is about. So I'm going to be looking directly at how do you live out your faith in the workplace? And here's why I want to look at this. Okay, these are some numbers I got from an organization that really focuses on this, the Denver Institute for Faith and Work. I believe they got these numbers from other groups like Gallup and Pew. But here's why I want to look at this topic. Only 47% of U.S. adults belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque, which is down more than 20% since the turn of the century. Now, of course, we're believers. We care about people going to church. But just overall, though, the entire country has gotten 20% less religious in one of these faiths that was mentioned. 30 million more Americans are religiously unaffiliated than just 10 years ago. Okay, more evidence of that. 90,000 hours is the average time people will spend working over a lifetime. Did you know that? If you have a job, you're going to work 90,000 hours over the span of your life. You know how many year, years that is? That's more than 10 years of nonstop work night and day, without sleeping, without going to the bathroom, taking any time off. <laughs> if you work nonstop every single minute for the next 10 plus years, that's the amount that you're going to work over your lifetime. That's a lot of work. And finally, here's the key reason why we're looking at this topic. 84% of Christians who are 18 to 29 years old have no idea how the Bible relates to their field or professional life. They have no clue how their faith intersects with their work. And I'm sure the numbers aren't any better when you get to older people, right? Okay, a lot of my peers, they don't know. I'm like, I'm just a Christian at work. Maybe I'll invite them to church one day. But that's pretty much it. So this paints a picture where believing Christians spend the majority of their waking hours at work as more and more people are becoming secular. And when I say secular, I just mean non-religious, worldly. And the vast majority of these Christians who are spending all that time at work don't know, don't have a clue how to integrate their faith with their work. So this is not a good picture. And yet, we come from a religious tradition that has rich theology on faith and work being integrated together. Did you know that? 
See, us here, we are Protestant evangelical Christians. And during the Protestant Reformation, that's our religious heritage. But during the Protestant Reformation, there was a foundation that was laid for how to integrate faith and work, a very rich foundation. And Martin Luther, who kicked off the Reformation, was pivotal, was instrumental in laying that foundation. See, before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church created this sharp divide between God's calling, which they only saw as full-time work among priests and monks. Okay, those people are called. Everyone else, you're not called. Okay, those are the people who are doing the true, sacred, spiritual work. Everyone else, you're just doing other stuff. So the Catholic Church made this sharp divide between God's spiritual calling and everything else. Well, Luther came along, and as he studied the scripture, and he had a PhD, he was a doctor in, th- in theology, he challenged that. Right? He challenged that divide. Okay, listen to what he said. He said the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one bit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. He said there's not one difference. Now, some people said, you know, you're kind of overstating the case there, Luther. Okay, there's some difference, right? So people thought he overstated it. But he continued to press the point. He kept going. That in God's eyes, there is no divide between spiritual and secular work. There's no divide. In God's eyes, if you're doing your work in faith for him, then it's all spiritual. So God sees your work as spiritual. And it's more than that. But God is working through your work, Luther said. No matter how normal or insignificant it might seem. This is what he uncovered. Luther said many of God's graces, like answers to prayer, come through means. And when he said that, he meant primarily the means of work. That was interesting. But he said, when you pray and ask God to do things, right, provide certain things, more often than not, his answer to that prayer is going to come through the means of your work. So, for example, he said in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, right? He teach us to pray, and then he's like, okay, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, right? You know that prayer? Give us today our daily bread. In other, in other words, I think a lot of us don't realize this or do this, but Jesus said you should pray every day for God to provide food for you and your family, if you take that literally, right? Do you pray for that? God, every day, please provide for me and my family today. Give us food. Well, how is God going to answer that prayer? How is he going to answer that prayer? Well, Luther said for the Israelites in the wilderness in ancient times, it came from manna dropping from heaven. Every day they would wake up and there was like food on the ground. Manna literally means what is it? They're like, what is it? Let's call it what is it? That's what manna means, literally in Hebrew. What is it? So they just ate what is it for 40 years. But Luther said for us, that's not the case anymore. That even ended for the Israelites once they entered the promised land. So then how does God answer that prayer daily? Luther said God's most direct answer to that prayer is going to be the work he gave you to do so that you can make money and then feed yourself and feed your family every single day. So how does God answer that prayer? Give us today our daily bread. He's like, here, here's your job. Here's a job to do. Go do it. And you will feed yourself and your family every single day. Maybe Luther was thinking of Deuteronomy 8.18. 
Moses said, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power or ability to get wealth. A lot of people don't know that's in the Bible. But the Bible says, thank God for your job because he gave you the ability to work there and to make money. So Luther said, this is how God works. It's through means, oftentimes the means of work. He also said Christians are taught to pray for healing from illness. Amen, James 5. Well, how does God answer that prayer? Well, sometimes miraculously, Luther affirmed that. God can do anything. But oftentimes, God will answer prayers for healing. How? Through the work of doctors and healthcare professionals. And a lot of you guys should say amen because you guys are in that field. Right? Through your work if you're in that field. Now, again, Luther was not a naturalist. He believed in the miraculous power of God to heal, to provide. He even had personal testimonies of God working supernaturally in his life. But I think he's making a lot of sense here. But he's like, but by far, the normal way God's going to answer these prayers is how? Through work. Through your work and other people's work all around you. So here's his point. God often uses the normal means of work to answer prayer. And prayer is what? One of the most spiritual things we do. Amen? Okay, what's more spiritual than prayer? To pray directly to God and ask for things. Well, God answers through the normal means of work, oftentimes. So what does that make work? That makes work like prayer. It makes it spiritual. Does this make sense? Is this connecting? So Luther said all work is spiritual. Here's a famous quote by him, but he said, God himself is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. I like that, end quote. But God himself is milking the cows. And if God is milking the cow through the milkmaid, which provides milk for others to drink, then this is what Luther said. He said, all honest work, and this isn't a quote, this is my summary, but all honest work is a channel of God's love to others. That's why God gave us work. It's the means for him to answer prayer, to provide, and ultimately to love others. So all no more work, all honest work, is a channel of God's love to love others. And so what this means is if you want to align yourself with God in your work, okay, here's the first thing you need to understand. I know you go there for a paycheck. I know that's important. It's important, right? We talked about that. God will provide for you through that. But beyond that, though, some of you guys already know this. Others, you need to get on with this. But if you want to align yourself with God in your work, then you need to see your work, whether it's typing all day, whether it's bagging groceries, as a way to love others. This comes straight from that theology of work that was birthed in the Reformation. How is God going to love others directly through your work? And that is what God is doing through your work. He is providing for the needs of others. He's causing humanity to flourish through your work. And a lot of us, they don't, we don't see that. We just see it as a way to make money. So Luther taught that all of life is spiritual. And in doing that, he elevated all honest work. It's spiritual, brothers and sisters. Okay, it is godly. Okay, it is something that God himself is literally working through you. See, God is working through your work. And so it all begins with God himself. And this makes sense when you look at scripture because God is a worker. He himself is a worker. You know, here's a pop quiz question. But what's the first thing you learn about God the moment you open the Bible to Genesis 1-1? Okay, what's the first thing you learn? Well, you might say, well, God exists, yes, <laughs> What's the second thing you learn right after God exists? You learn that he's a working God. 
That's the first thing you learn in the opening pages of Scripture. And that is not the case for most religions because most religions, they begin their, their holy books or their sacred stories with some sort of a battle between the gods and this is how the gods were formed and it usually starts with some sort of a, uh, form of battle. But the Bible begins with the one true God not fighting but working. Isn't that interesting? That's how our faith begins. There is a God, he exists, the one true God, and he's working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then after six straight days of working, this is what it says, Genesis 2.2. And then on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and then he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. That's like the first thing you learn about God. Oh, there's a God, and he works. And he works a lot. And he worked nonstop until he finally finished, and then he rested. I mean, that's like literally the first thing you learn about our God. So we believe in a God who works, amen? And then when Jesus, his son, finally came, who is the perfect reflection of God the Father, what did he reveal to us? More of the same. He continued to show us that God works. Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. By the way, I'm working too, Jesus said. Why? Because I'm the reflection of God the Father. I'm always at work. And so now it's no wonder why this God who works does what? He calls us to work. Amen? This is why God calls us to work. Because he's working all the time. He created us in his image. And why is he calling us to work? So that he can use our work to do his work. So you got to understand, this is foundational theology to begin to now integrate your faith with work. It's more than a place to just go and make money and have this kind of career and maybe be fulfilled a little bit and then maybe you'll bring your friends to church. There's a profound theology of work right from the beginning of scripture, the opening pages of scripture. So no matter how normal and insignificant your work might seem, God is using it. God is profoundly at work through your work. And so here's the theology of work that runs deep in Protestant Christianity. And that's why Protestants even became famous for how hard they work. Have you guys ever heard that saying, the Protestant work ethic? A lot of people have heard that, right? Even non-Christians have heard it. Well, probably not non-Christians today. I I really don't have a lot of faith in non-Christians today because they seem to know almost nothing about our religious past in the West so maybe they haven't heard it. But in the past, in the, you know, before, a lot of non-Christians even knew it. But the Protestant work ethic, where did that come from? Why were Protestants known for working so hard and so diligently? Well, all of that flowed from the Reformation, starting with Luther and his theology of work. Now later, John Calvin, I'm giving you a little bit of a background today, right? Some history. But later, John Calvin a couple decades later came along and he refined Luther's theology. So it actually got better. But he said, yes, Luther's right. All honest work is spiritual. God works through your work. But then Calvin recognized that we also live in a fallen world. So even honest work, what he meant by that is work that is not inherently sinful can be distorted by sin. Right? So even honest work can be distorted by sin. So even honest work can become soul-crushing. I remember hearing this one example from a, a Bible teacher. He He's a professor, I think, in a seminary. But he's like, you know what? I understand what Luther is saying, but the first time I questioned it is when I went to this one job during the summer, and I learned how to do this job in this factory within one hour. I became very familiar with it in one hour. 
And then I did the exact same thing for three more months. And at the end of that, he's like, I struggled to see how God was glorified in this. And then he said he thought about people who stay here for 30 years doing this repetitively again and again and again and again. And so is that something that God has for you to flourish you? Maybe. You might be okay with that. But a lot of jobs can be soul-crushing. A lot of jobs can have elements of injustice and abuse in it. So Calvin recognized all that. He's like, yes, all honest work is spiritual work. God is working through your work. But not all work is cracked up to be what it should be, right? Because we live in a fallen world. So Calvin and then the reformers after him eventually talked about how work itself, like the church, needs to be reformed continuously. I love this, but the reformers had this saying. It was in Latin, but semper reformanda. Memorize that. You'll sound really smart. But semper reformanda. That was a saying that they always said. It means the church must always be reformed. Why? Because sin will creep in. It's going to corrupt the church, right? It'll distort it. So continuously, the church must be reformed. This reformation is not a one-off, right? That's what they meant. Well, these reformers extended that all the way to work eventually, because they believe that work itself must always be reformed. Why? Because sin will inevitably creep in and distort work itself. So semper reformanda, even with work. Yes, work is given by God. Yes, it's spiritual. Yes, God is working through your work. But work can be soul crushing. Injustice and abuse can enter work. There can be things that are not right about it. So you need to constantly be reforming that as well. Or let it be reformed through God. And so this is a rich heritage, brothers and sisters. I'm trying to help you to understand where all this is coming from. Where do, you, where do you think all these labor unions and all these movements in the West that brought like rights, women's rights, and all these you know, reforms and work and labor laws and children labor laws, I mean, where did all this energy come from? Oh, that's just, I don't know, that's just the enlightenment. No, it's not. Okay, all this energy to continuously reform, not just the church, but even work, it came straight from our heritage from the Protestant Reformation. You gotta understand where all this stuff comes from. You think the feudal peasants in feudal Europe, you think they were reforming their work all the time? Heck no, right? They just accepted it. This is my destiny. This is my lot in life. I'm just a peasant, right? I'm just gonna work and do the same thing over and over again and be abused and oppressed. And then they died and then their kids did the same thing, right? So where did all this energy and all this vision to reform things continuously, where did it come from? This is your heritage, brothers and sisters, semper reformanda. So even work itself must continuously be reformed. So with this kind of a rich heritage we have in integrating faith and work, right? There's such a deep and profound theology for work. What went wrong? <laughs> right? What happened? How come now 84% of young Christians today have no idea how the Bible relates to their work life? Okay, what happened? How come so many Christians have no clue how to integrate their faith with their work? Well, I'm sure the answer to that is pretty complicated, but I think one reason a lot of Christians lost this theology of work is because churches, especially in America, I think, made our faith into this kind of hyper-individualized faith. What I mean by that is the question always became, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? How many of you guys grew up hearing that all the time? I, I did, right? And I think that's important, right? But that's what Christianity became, especially in America. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? The emphasis was on personal relationship. 
Okay, it was all focused on that. It was always about me and Jesus. And so over time, yeah, it's just me and Jesus, and then I just do this thing called work, and I don't, I don't know how they connect. So I think that's one reason. But here's another reason. But I think the culture that we live in has become increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And so people have struggled to express their faith in the workplace. Because you show up to work and you immediately realize, oh, a lot of people here aren't Christian. Actually, they're even hostile to it. So what do I do? What do I do? So they struggle to express their faith, let alone integrate their faith. Right? They stop doing it. So I think this is the situation, and this finally brings us to the book of Daniel. Okay, so that was a long introduction, but this brings us to the book of Daniel. And the reason why this brings us to Daniel is because when we meet Daniel at the very beginning of the book, here was this Jewish teenager carried off to exile in Babylon. So he was ripped away from his family. This was God's judgment upon the Israelites for committing blasphemy and idolatry repeatedly. So finally, God had Nebuchadnezzar come, destroy Jerusalem, and take many of the Israelites away to exile. And so Daniel and his friends were in this group. They probably never saw their family again. So imagine that. You're like 15 years old. You're ripped from your home. You never saw your dad, your mom again. Right? This was Daniel. And he was brought to a foreign land. He was brought into the king's palace. And then he started getting trained to do what? Work. That's what Daniel's story is. He's basically an employee in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace for the entirety of his life, from 15 all the way into, until he was in his 80s. But he was working in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. And this was his ministry, this was his calling, but this is what he was doing. And this was not a Christian company, amen? This was not Chick-fil-A, right? right? He didn't show up going, hey, I'm here now, I'm a Jew. I believe in the one true God. So I know you don't. We're going to beat that out of you, right? So Daniel was immediately put to work. He began to get trained to work in a very hostile government, in a very hostile culture to his faith. So the values, beliefs, and worldview of Daniel's new home was directly opposed to his faith. Right? And some of you guys know exactly what that feels like. So we see that right from the beginning of this book. See, Daniel, he was considered a prophet by the Jews and the Christians who have studied his books, his book, I should say, throughout history. Daniel was considered a prophet, but his story doesn't begin like the typical book of the prophets. Because the typical book of the prophets, like Jeremiah or Isaiah, how does it begin? It begins with their calling, right? Their glorious calling. Like Isaiah going into the temple, he saw the high and lifted Lord on his throne. Well, Daniel's story doesn't begin like that. But rather, it begins with him being placed into a work environment that's very hostile. See, it's interesting. It's different. And I think many of your experiences more like Daniel than these other prophets, where they got this glorious calling first, and then they entered the work they had to do. But I think most people, probably most of you sitting here, your experience is more like Daniel. What I mean is your work is not so much a calling but it probably feels more like something you need to do to survive, right? Kind of like Daniel. It's not some glorious calling. I didn't see God high and lifted up, and now I'm here, you know, typing out Excel sheets. <laughs> You're probably feeling like I'm doing this to survive. So here you are now in the workplace, and you find that it's not exactly friendly or open to your faith. 
You've come to realize other coworkers might even knowingly put down and ridicule the faith that you have deep in your heart. And they don't say it to you because they don't even know you're a Christian. But this is the environment. And so this is your first experience of work as a person of faith. So you're just like Daniel. You're not like these other prophets who got this glorious calling first and then you launched into work. You're just working to survive, right? This is something you need to do to live your life. And suddenly you find yourself in a very hostile environment. So Daniel's first experience of work was not this glorious calling like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but rather it was a challenge. His very first experience of work was a challenge and a very unique kind of challenge, a challenge that many of you guys are facing. And here it is. How am I supposed to work here as a believer and not lose my job and at the same time not lose my faith? How do you do that? Right? Isn't that the challenge? And I'm sure this was the question that Daniel and his friends had. Right? The moment they showed up in the courtroom of Nebuchadnezzar, oh my gosh, okay, we're going to be put to work, and how am I going to keep my job here? And keeping their job meant staying alive. <laughs> and at the same time, not lose my faith. So a lot of you, I'm sure, have the same question. Because a lot of you, the moment you started your jobs, this is the question you're wondering. Okay, I'm a Christian, but how do I navigate this space, right? Okay, what, how, how am I going to get through this job here as a believer, but not lose my job, but not lose my faith? And as you face this question, there are only three ways you can answer it. There are only three paths you can take. This was the same with Daniel. There were only three paths before Daniel. And two of them are very common. Okay, two paths are usually the paths that people are going to go on. And then the third one is the less common. But the third one is the one Daniel took. The third one is God's path. So what are the first two paths? Okay, what are the common ways that people answer that challenge? How am I going to keep this job and also keep my faith? Well, most people, they're going to answer it in one of two ways. The first way is assimilation, right? You're going to assimilate. What I mean by that is you are going to hide your faith and keep it completely private. You're not going to let anyone know you're a Christian unless it really comes out, right? Unless it's forced out. But you're going to settle that in your heart early on. Okay, maybe not right away. Maybe it's not a conscious decision. But somewhere, subconsciously, you make that decision early on. This is going to remain private. Why? Because i got to keep my faith, but i got to keep my job too. So it becomes private. And with that settled in your heart, then you move on to begin fully participating in the culture of your workplace. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it now. Okay, I, I've settled it. My faith is my faith. It's private. It's just mine. You don't need to know about it. And now here I am. I'm a part of this company, I'm a part of this place, let's do it, right? And you begin to participate. You begin to make friendships, and that's a good thing, right? I'm not saying don't do that, but you begin to make friendships. But here, here's the thing, though. It's a friendship where the deepest part of your life, which is your faith, you're not sharing it with those friends. Because you've decided in your heart, no, that's not what I'm doing here. Because I've got to keep my job and also keep my faith. So I've decided to keep it private, and I'm going to just assimilate. So that's one path, and it's very, very common. Here's the second way a lot of people take this path, is to isolate, right? It's isolation. So for these people, they show up to their work, it's hostile, right? Or maybe it's a little neutral, but it's not exactly welcoming. And they decide early on, you know what? I don't really care. <laughs> I'm not going to keep my faith private. 
So people eventually find out at work you're a Christian. They begin to realize you have very different values from them. You might even raise concerns, right? And because of that, they or you or maybe both of you put up a wall. Over time, there's a wall that goes up. And then it's just kind of this unsaid thing, but you don't really associate with the people in your work. You don't really associate with them, and they don't really associate with you. Why? Because you don't want to kill their fun, and they don't want to kill your faith, right? They don't want to step on anything that will irritate you. And so what happens here is you become very isolated, and then you look quickly for the one or two other Christians at your work, and then you form a tight community with them and basically only them the entire time you're there. So you're just cut off, right? I just go to work, I keep my head low, and I only associate with the one or two Christians at my work, and that's it. And so that's basically a form of isolation. It's a form of withdrawal. And a lot of people take that path. And again, I'm not saying this is like malicious. I'm not saying people are being bad and doing this. I'm just saying they're just trying to survive, right? They show up at work, and how am I going to keep my job and keep my faith? Some assimilate, some isolate. But praise God, there's a third way, and we're going to look at this starting next week, but it's gospelization, and that's a made-up word. <laughs> I made that up. Maybe some people have used it too. But it's not assimilation. It's not an isolation, but it's gospelization. Okay, what do I mean by that word? It's made up. But what I mean by that is letting the gospel shape the way you see yourself and see your work and the way you conduct yourself at work. And I'll make this clear. We're going to get into it next week. But it is not assimilation. It looks very different from that. And it's not isolation. It's very different from that. It's neither. But it is truly a third way. It's gospelization. You are living out the gospel in your workplace. So you are not going to lose your job, but you're not going to lose your faith either. And you are going to be interacting and engaging with the people there. And it is a gospelization. It directly impacts the way you conduct yourself at work. And this is exactly what we see Daniel doing. Exactly. We're going to dig into it next week. We're going to look at that first chapter. But it's amazing. But right when he gets on the scene, he faces this challenge, right? And he decides as a very young teenager, what am I going to do, Lord? And God gave him wisdom beyond his years. Okay, you're going to collaborate with the Babylonians, but you're going to do it in a way that you don't lose your faith. It's amazing. Right? He didn't become just like everyone else. He didn't start like campaigning, Right? trying to bring down Nebuchadnezzar and his, he didn't do any of that. But he began to collaborate, especially with that one eunuch, that servant. And he was preserving his job as well. He was trying to protect, protect that eunuch as well. But he began to collaborate and work together in order to begin to spread his faith. And at the same time, he preserved his faith. And so we're going to start looking at that next time. And so we're going to wrap this up soon, but which path are you on? If you're working, and again, this applies to anybody, right? You could be at school as well. You could be doing a lot of other things remotely, working from home. But which path are you on? This is real, brothers and sisters. You know, I remember, um, this is many years ago at my other church when I was in college, but I remember talking to somebody who actually went abroad to begin their working career. They graduated college. And I remember after working there for a few years, that person came back and I was talking to that person, I said, you know, how was it? And that person basically said, you know, it was actually uh, very amazing. Some parts of, you know, were enjoyable, but a lot of it was very hard, though, because of the company he was in. But he said, literally, I think within the first week or a short time after he started working, in this company, the culture of the company was the boss would invite 
everybody, right, in that office to go drink right after work ended. And this was not like, oh, just a little happy hour, eat some chicken nuggets and go home. (laughs) But this company, and he already knew the culture, right, because he already heard about it. But they got blasted, right? I mean, they would get wasted, everybody. And this was funded by the boss. This was literally the king's table. And this was a way to make connections and to, you know, network and rise in the ranks. And so it was expected of him. If you're going to do well here, I mean, you got to come out. And so he really struggled with that. So this is, this is real stuff, brothers and sisters. This isn't just theology or theoretical. But as you begin to work in this culture, in this world, you're going to face this challenge. How do I keep my job at the same time keep my faith? You only have those three paths. And so by God's grace, hopefully as we begin to look at Daniel's life in the weeks to come, you're going to take that third path. Amen? We're going to move together onto that third path. So with that, let's come before the Lord. Let's bow our heads. But brothers and sisters, you have every resource you need to live out your faith in a powerful and rich and I believe life-changing way. Not just here at church or with your families, but at work, in the very workplace that you will spend the majority of your time. Okay, 90,000 hours. The average person will spend 90,000 hours at work. Don't tell me your faith is going to have nothing to do with those 90,000 hours. Your faith should profoundly impact every minute that you spend in those 90,000 hours at work, profoundly impact. It should directly impact the way you perceive your work, the way you see yourself at work, the way you conduct yourself at work, the way you're gonna make an impact at work. Okay, this is the gospel. So let's just come before the Lord, brothers and sisters, and we're just gonna spend a moment asking God, Lord, give us wisdom. But let's just ask the Lord for wisdom, like the wisdom he gave Daniel. But let's just pray for that. Every Sunday, if you're here for the first time, we spend a moment or two responding to God's word. So let's just do that right now. Thank you, Father. You have a very rich heritage, brothers and sisters. You come from a very rich theological heritage. Very brilliant. God-fearing men and women before us have already thought through all these issues. They've written about them. They've written entire books on them. We just have to understand the issues now and just walk in it. So let's just come before God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father God. follow a God who works he's always at work and he intimately understands and knows your work 
And this God who works has a lot to say about how you should work. So let's just come before him. Thank you, Father God.